We're in Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 5. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The second reading is from Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast in my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Thanks so much, Grace. Well, do keep Isaiah open. Uh, we'll be referring to it and a few other passages as well. Well, the first time I ever worked in an office was 12 years ago. And uh, office is a strong word. It was a converted attic. Um, I was in a small company, basically me and my boss most of the time. Occasionally my boss's wife, um, who would do some uh, finance stuff with the company. Uh, and it was quite fun, you know, nice, small, cozy setting. One of the things I remember most about that time was that the radio was always on. We were always listening to music, and it was always Radio 1 that we listened to for a season of time. So I was exposed to a lot of pop music um, for a particular season of my life. Those were big years for bands like One Direction. I heard What Makes You Beautiful so many times. I'm not sure my ears will ever forgive me. But another big song of the time was Video Games by Lana Del Rey. Who knows video games? A few, a few, yeah, I didn't think it'd be that many. But um, it's basically an atmospheric love song, and it was a viral hit and a breakthrough hit for Lana Del Rey. Uh, and there are a few lines from the chorus that have always stayed with me ever since I heard them. She sings this in the chorus. Heaven is a place on earth with you. Tell me all the things that you want to do. Later she says, it's better that I ever even knew. They say that the world was built for two. Only worth living if somebody is loving you. And now you do. Now that song is over 10 years old now, but its message endures. The idea that romance is the peak experience of life. The world is made for two after all. And if you are not able to experience the joys and raptures of a relationship, then in some real meaningful sense, you are missing out. Many in our society believe that. Many, I suspect, in our church would believe that, even if we wouldn't put it in so many words. But it does raise a question then, doesn't it? How should we think about those who are not in romantic relationships, those who are single, our church is made up of both married and single people. 
And for those that are single, that singleness may be temporary, just for a time and a season. For some, they may never marry. They may never enter a romantic relationship. Even for those of us who are married, over, over half of us will become single again, if only for the reason that we will outlive our spouse one day. Now, we're taking a few weeks to think about the area of relationships at Grace Church. You can see the slide there. I thought I'd wake you all up with a lurid yellow. And we're thinking about what, what the Bible has to say about certain um, relationships. And we're thinking this week, we're kicking off with singleness. What does the Bible have to say about it? And if we are single, can we find fulfillment in that calling? Now, there's so much to say on this topic, and I'll only really scratch the surface, but hopefully this will be a blessing to us as we see what Scripture says about this important topic. So let's see what the Lord wants to teach us about singleness. Well, first of all, the dignity of singleness. Against, over and against many cultures, the Bible holds singleness in high regard. It gives dignity to single people. They are valued. And I want us to see that by looking at Isaiah, which you'll have in front of you um, in your Bibles, the passages we've just read. Now, we read from chapters 54 and from 56. Now, many of you will be familiar with chapter 53 of Isaiah, which is the famous servant song talking about the suffering servant who would come as a Messiah and die for his people, taking their sins on himself and thereby bringing salvation. And of course, it's a glorious prophecy about the Lord Jesus. But we're going to look not at 53, but at what are the results of this Messiah's work for certain groups of people. And there are two that are mentioned in chapter 54 and in 56. In 54, we have someone who's described as a barren woman, that is a childless woman. And in 56, we have a eunuch. And both of these types of people are categories of single people in the Old Testament. Let's look at each in turn. So look at chapter 54 first. Uh, the barren woman, we're told, verse 1, that she has not had children. And in verse 4, there's a reference to her widowhood. So she was married, but her husband has died. And this is a, a disastrous situation to be in in the ancient world. Because in that culture, the continuation of the people, of your people, depended on having biological children. It was so important to have kids. Children were a sign of blessing. They still are today. The Bible teaches that. They carried your name. They were a way of contributing to the nation and fulfilling the calling that God gave in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. In the Old Testament in particular, to not have children was shameful, particularly as a woman, perhaps even a sign of God's judgment on you. And you can see some of the um, negative connotations that come with this woman's state. Look at verse 1, she's described as desolate. Verse 4 refers to the shame of her youth, the reproach of her widowhood. So not only does this woman have to deal with the fact that her companion and partner has died, she also has to deal with shame that comes from being alone and childless. Now, look at chapter 56, where we are told about 
a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were men who were castrated. Uh, this happened to men who served in royal courts in, um, in nations like Assyria and Persia. Uh, and they were castrated because they had an important job, but, uh, but it ensured that there would be no risk of them impregnating the queen, basically. So they had a kind of important role in the royal courts, and yet, of course, because of their condition, that uh, meant that they could never have a, a wife, they could never get married, they could never enjoy a sexual relationship, they could never be a husband or a father. And again, a eunuch wanting to join God's people, Israel, would have felt shame. Look at verse 3. It seems a eunuch would be tempted to say, I am only a dry tree. In other words, I am not like everyone else. I cannot blossom like everyone else can. I cannot have a family like others can. I'm second class. And so you see, for the, the woman in chapter 54 and the eunuch in chapter 56, their singleness was a cause of shame. And singleness is a cause of shame today, albeit for different reasons. And if you think I'm wrong, let me re redefine singleness as celibacy. Now, our culture has no problem with singleness if you can be sexually active. If anything, it might be a plus as you kind of retain some level of autonomy and independence. But to be celibate is to invite pity or perhaps even ridicule. Why do films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin exist? Now, if you'd never seen the film, but you heard the title, I, get, I, I guess that you would be able to figure out that that was a comedy just by the title. Because to be a virgin at 40 years old is a slightly awkward thing. And again, the underlying assumption is that if you're not in a romantic relationship and not in a sexual relationship with somebody, you're missing out. And, and this is heightened today in a culture where um, we see our sexual preferences and our sexual desires linked heavily with our identity, who we are. One of the problems, if we believe that, is that if you cannot express your sexuality, then you cannot truly be you. And so celibacy can be devastating and brings shame. But the good news of Christianity is that singles are given dignity. They're given dignity. Look again at chapter 54, verse 1. The childless woman. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy. This childless woman can enjoy joy. Verse 4. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. So the coming of Jesus prophesied in chapter 53 leads to a situation, a state of affairs, where even childless women without husbands can shout for joy and their shame taken away. Look at chapter 56. What does it say about the eunuch? 
halfway through verse 3, let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Shame is removed from the eunuch. In fact, he is given a name that is an identity. He's given blessings that are even greater than if he had a family. That is the promise of the gospel to single people such as these. We'll see more about what that means later on. But what it means is in, the, in light of Jesus' coming, the shame that we may feel for being single is taken away. Even foreign sexually mutilated eunuchs are welcomed in by the Lord and given dignity and honor. And the same is true for all of us, including single people. Christianity gives dignity to singles. And just think, Jesus was single. He never had a family. He never had a sexual relationship. And yet we would never say that he only lived half a life, would we? We would never say that he was deficient in some way. He was the most human person who ever lived. And that is encouragement enough to us if we are single. So Christianity dignifies singleness. And so the upshot of this is simple. If you are single, if you are celibate, you can hold your head up high as a Christian. You are valued and you are honored by Jesus Christ himself. You have dignity in his kingdom. Dignity of singleness. Secondly, the opportunity of singleness. So it's not just that singleness has dignity. The Bible says that singleness is actually a good thing, believe it or not. I'm going to look um, at some verses from 1 Corinthians 7. You might want to turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but page 1148, 1 Corinthians 7. Let me read. This is the Apostle Paul from verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So the context here is Paul is commanding married couples that they should not withhold themselves sexually from each other. But just as he says this, he goes in verse 7 to say something simple, uh, interesting. I wish that all of you were as, as I am. And in the context, it means single. I wish that all of you were single. But he then says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one another. So we get from this passage that not only can singleness be a good thing, that it is a gift that God gives, and it is a good gift, and that it is even, at least in some circumstances, preferable to being married. See, singleness is valued in the Bible. 
And we get this um, idea of the gift of singleness that comes from this passage. And there's been a lot of thought and chat about what the gift of singleness is. It's caused a lot of misunderstanding. So some have seen it as this kind of absence of romantic or sexual longings, like this kind of superhuman ability not to want um, a partner or be tempted sexually. And, and if that's true, then you can be single, but not have the gift of singleness. Does that make sense? Now, there are a number of problems with that. The first is this. It doesn't really fit in with the idea of gifts that Paul talks about in Corinthians. We looked at spiritual gifts, didn't we, last, last week? The idea of a spiritual gift is that it is used to build up other people. It's used to build up the church. It's not primarily about my sense of fulfillment, my inner sense of happiness and contentment. It's about other people. And if you think about it, no one speaks about the gift of marriage in the same way that they would speak about the gift of singleness in that sense, right? Can you imagine if I said to my wife, sorry, Hannah, um, I know we're a married couple, but um, I've realized God hasn't given me the gift of marriage. I don't feel like it would go down particularly well. You see, the gift of singleness, biblically, is simply being single. If you are single, you have the gift of singleness. If you are married, you have the gift of marriage. It's as simple as that. So how is singleness then a gift to be used for others? What opportunities does it bring? So if you look on at verse 32, Paul says this, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, it's easy to misread Paul here, I think, as if being married is somehow more sinful than being single. It's more worldly. You know, really, we should all just be focused on Jesus, but our pesky spouses get in the way and they distract us and they pull us away from godliness. Now, if Paul meant that, um, surely that would mean it would be ungodly to get married and that our spouses would be an idol. But Paul is very positive about marriage elsewhere, so that doesn't suggest that that's not what he means in this passage. And actually, part of the way we love God is by loving our husband or our wife. That's a biblical concept, so they're not mutually exclusive. So Paul's point, rather, is that there is a sense in which being married makes life even more complicated than if you are single. Now, I don't mean to say that singles have an easy life. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that when you become married and have a family, it brings a greater degree of complexity into your life. Because your husband or wife and your children have a right to your attention in a special and sustained way. And even just practical things, you know, for some parents, getting their children out of the house 
is a, like a mammoth event. There are logistics with school runs, with birthday parties. And then just for couples, you know, making time for the in-laws, uh, making space not just for your own friends, but your spouse's friends. All sorts of needs and things come up um, in marriage that wouldn't be there in singleness. There is a complexity to marriage. So single people are, generally speaking, freer in those areas. They may be more available at weekends or evenings. They may be more flexible to change their plans at a moment's notice. Not always, but in general. And what Paul is saying is that because singleness carries with it um, a relative simplicity, then that gives a, a certain freedom to serve the Lord and his people that wouldn't be there for married couples. And, and that's true. You know, for single people, we have uh, unique opportunities to serve. I know people who have chosen to not get married, chosen not to date, so that they could spend a lot more of their time doing Christian ministry, for example, on kids' camps and, and other things. There are particularly opportunities that are given um, to single people, as there are particular opportunities that come with being married. It is an opportunity. And so, for those who are single in the church, I would say you have been given a gift by the Lord in which you can serve others with it. So how can you use that gift? What are the particulars of the opportunities that God has given you in your circumstances to serve him and others? Are there missed opportunities in your time and capacity? It's worth thinking through. Singleness is an opportunity. Thirdly, let's look at God's grace in singleness then. God's grace. So we've seen that singleness has dignity. We don't have to hang our heads in shame if we are single. There is opportunity. It gives particular ways in which we can serve others. But that does not take away from the fact that singleness can be hard and it brings challenges. Marriage does too, by the way. And sometimes single people don't always appreciate that. But that's not to down, downplay the fact that singleness can be very hard. And I just want to acknowledge that. It can bring unique struggles. Obvious ones, feelings of loneliness, sexual frustration sometimes. But there are lots of them, lots of issues. Sometimes a feeling of inadequacy communicated to us by others. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other week who's single. And he, he told me about this, a recent time where he was chatting to his parents and they were talking about someone's partner and uh, my friend kind of changed, he was, he was changing the conversation topic and he, and he said, you know, well, speaking of partners, and he saw his dad's face light up in that moment. Why? Well, because his dad thought he was about to disclose that he was in a new relationship. He wasn't in a new relationship. But seeing his dad's face light up like that actually stung him a bit because he was not used to seeing his face, his dad's face light up like that for other aspects of his life. It was as if the only way that he can bring joy and delight to his father is not by being sufficient in and of himself, but by being in a relationship 
Things like that can be hard. There can also be other subtle difficulties with singleness, particularly for those singles who grow older um, and stay single. Questions like, who do I live with? Who do I go on holiday with? Who do I tell when I've had a bad day at work? There's not necessarily anyone to come and just naturally say that to when I come home. All sorts of challenges. And it means that for, for some of us, the gift of singleness is kind of the gift that we didn't want. Kind of like a Christmas present given to us by someone who we suspect doesn't know us very well. But the truth is that Jesus does know us. He knows what he's doing in putting us in the circumstances in which we are in. And the good news for us is that he gives us his grace in singleness and in marriage or in whatever situation we're in. So how does God show his grace in singleness? Two ways. Firstly, God shows his grace through the church. Turn back to Isaiah 54. That's page 742. I'll read again from verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Isaiah is promising that through the gospel, childless single women will have families. They will have children. So many children, in fact, that they'll have to get an extension on the house. Do you see that? The tent needs to be enlarged to fit everyone in. And this is a reference not to biological children, but to spiritual children found in the church. That is, in the church, we gain family. Jesus would say this himself in Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Jesus has designed his church to be a family where those who have lost biological family will gain spiritual sons and daughters, spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual brothers and sisters. Jesus has given us a church to, to be the place where both married people and single people serve and look after each other. In the church, single people can be fathers and mothers as they invest in other Christians who are younger. Singles can enjoy companionship, even intimacy, in the context of the Christian community while still remaining single. You know, as Christians, we have to fight against an idea common in our culture that intimacy is only possible within a romantic or a sexual context. We have to recover a robust biblical um, definition of friendship. We've lost that, I think, or it's easily lost. 
But God has given his church so that real relationship, real community, and yes, even intimacy for single people is possible. That's how he shows his grace to us. That's part of the problem, isn't it? Because many of us have not experienced this intimacy that we would love to see. We've not experienced the love and care and community in the church that we would like. And it would take longer than I have now to speak into that and try to suggest ways to change. But here are a few ideas, particularly on this matter of singleness. Couples and families, are we willing to open up our homes and lives to allow others in, including singles? I know this already happens, by the way. I don't think that's absent here. I I think of one of my single friends who has what he calls his Tuesday friends. They're a family with children. He would go around every Tuesday. That was a, a scheduled thing in his calendar. He was invited into the life of this family. That was a blessing to him. I wonder what initiatives we can think of um, as families to, to involve others in our, in our community, to bring others in, particularly singles. But I want to give a word to the singles on this as well. Look, I, I don't want to patronize you. Okay, I, All this talk of community, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying to the married people, oh, let's, let's kind of throw a bone to the single people. Let's help them feel included and, and let's, let's bring, bring them in, you know, as if it's all about us doing you a favor. And the direction of travel only goes one way. That is not the case at all. I, I want to say, singles in the church, we need you. Married couples and families need you. And for more than babysitting. You know, sometimes it's tempting to look at married couples and look at families and see them as a self-sufficient unit where all one has, um, all one needs is found in the other. That is not true. It's absolutely not true. Married couples need the love and support of others, including single people. We benefit from you. It is not beneath us to be blessed by you. I know that for Hannah and I, we've been incredibly blessed by both married and single friends in various ways. And so I hope that that gives you a sense of agency and a sense of empowerment in your singleness. I think it's right that those who are married reach out to those who are single and seek to serve them and get alongside them. I think that's right. But singles can be proactive too. You have agency and power. So reach out, offer help. See how your married friends are doing. Where we take initiative, where we use the gifts that God has given us to serve others and seek to use those gifts, we will be a blessing to each other. And perhaps that is one step forward in reaching the goal of community in its depth and richness that Jesus has for us. The church is God's grace to all of us. The second way God shows his grace to single people is through the gospel. Look at Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 5. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. 
You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Why should the single childless woman not feel shame? Why can she shout for joy? Because she is in a union with God himself. Her maker, the Lord Almighty, is her husband. Marriage gets at the heart of the gospel. It points to the gospel. And so that means that human romance, sexuality, and marriage are not ends in and of themselves. They are a signpost that point beyond themselves to the Lord Jesus and his love for his people. Okay, so God has hardwired into creation um, the gospel so that every time a couple gets married, it is a picture of the greater marriage, the truer marriage, which is between Christ and his church. And that means that for every Christian, even every single Christian, they have a spouse. They are married. There are no singles in the kingdom of heaven because we all belong to Jesus. We are his bride and he is our husband. You know, if you drive into Manchester from a long way away on the motorway, you come in on the M56 or whatever, you might see signs that say Manchester. Okay, signs can be pretty well designed. I'm a graphic designer, I appreciate that sort of thing. But signs are not as cool as being in Manchester. (laughs) Okay, and marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It's a glorious sign, but it is a sign that fades in comparison to the glory of actually knowing Christ for yourself as his, one of his people. That is what marriage points to. And so what this means is that if you are single, but you are a Christian, you lack nothing, ultimately. You have the very thing that marriage is just supposed to point to. You have it already in the Lord Jesus You can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I lack nothing. You can say that without your fingers crossed behind your back because you have the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is the most perfect spouse, the most perfect friend, the most perfect companion one could ever want. Think of it, he took on his flesh and blood for you. He gave his body and blood then on the cross for your sins. Though he reigns from heaven, he is available to you at any moment. You can come to him with the things on your heart and he will listen. And he cares. The scriptures say that he delights in us. He delights in us despite our our sins and our flaws. He desires for you to show yourself to him in prayer, in coming to reading the scriptures. He wants you to show your face. He prays for you constantly. His prayer to his Father is that you will be with him one day. Consider how busy he is every day caring for you, giving you good gifts, giving you friendship, 
and sunshine and the love of a church family. His concern is that you make it through life and come and be with him. You know, when we get to the new creation, there will not be sexuality anymore. There will not be marriage anymore. We will enjoy each other's company as brothers and sisters, but we will be enraptured in love of Jesus Christ. Every day we will learn more of his character and his heart. And we can enjoy that now. Marriage is about the gospel. And for us, whether we are single or married, we can enjoy that ultimate fulfillment of what marriage only points to. That is his grace to us. We are not alone. We've not been abandoned. We are not without a friend. We are not without intimacy. We are not without someone who actually desires us. If we trust in Christ, we have that in the greatest lover of our soul that we could ever ask for. That is his grace to us. The saddest thing is to be married, but to not know Christ. Because marriage points to Jesus. And if we do not know Jesus, then now is a good time to come to him because he will receive us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how merciful and good you are to us that you would unite us to your son in marriage. That we would have the opportunity to enjoy communion with him, intimacy with him. Father, thank you also that you enable us to have human contact with each other in the church and real community. Father, where we have not been the community that you've called us to, where singleness has looked implausible because we have not loved each other as we should, we ask for your forgiveness. Father, help us to be a rich, deep Christian community that encourages each other in Christ. Father, for those singles who feel downcast and discouraged, encourage them. Reveal to them your love for them and the desire of Christ. And Father, for those of us here who do not know the Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to his beauty today? Unite us to him so that one day we would enjoy that wedding banquet in eternity with him forever. Lord Jesus, may we make much of you. You are the great husband. We praise you now. Amen.